study in the book of Job. We're going to get our foot in the door today and we'll be getting into this first section here where we will be presented with Job's dilemma. The first major section of the book of Job deals with Job's dilemma and you can see here the beginnings of our outline of this book. Now for the first two chapters in fact we have the dilemma presented and it begins with our introduction to this man Job and that's the section that we'll be focused on today. Next time we'll get a look behind the scenes as we find the real cause of Job's problem as Satan debates with God. And then wrapping up this division that gives us the dilemma will be the arrival of Job's friends. But now as we come to our study today, we remind you, my friend, that anytime we enter the Word of God, we always want to enter with prayer. So let's bow our hearts. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for another day. We praise you that you have given your word to us and that your word reminds us that those who are your disciples will bring out of your treasure things new and old. We pray that as we embark on this rather old book that we can be reminded of some old truths but that we may also glean from your spirit some new truths and some new um, teachings that you would have us to know. We pray all these things in the name of Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. Amen. Now, we're going to begin our way through Job today, but there is some preliminary information that we'd like to put down first. To begin with, the title. Now, the first thing that we read when we come to this book is, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. So we know right off the bat that the book of Job is named after Job, and he is the narrative's primary character. Now the name Job is either from the Hebrew root word for persecution, meaning persecuted one, or the Arabic word for repent, meaning repentant one. And as we'll see, the book teaches about both persecution and repentance primarily. The story tells of an era in the life of Job in which Job was tested and the character of God was revealed. The writers of the New Testament quote from Job directly two times uh, in Romans and in 1 Corinthians. And in some other places, scripture shows us that Job was a real person. Both Ezekiel in the Old Testament and James in the New refer to him as such. Now the author, as far as the author and date goes, the author of the book is not named. Many different authors have been suggested for various reasons, such as Moses, Solomon, Elihu, Isaiah, Hezekiah, Jeremiah, and Ezra, but no one knows for sure. And the date of the book's writing is also unknown, but it does appear to have been written long after the events that it describes occurred. It also appears to be the earliest biblical book written, even before the book of Genesis. And that's the reason that we're going to be coming to this book first, beloved. This is God's initial written revelation of himself to mankind. And as we move along in this study, we're going to be 
going through this program attempting to go chronologically while weaving back and forth between the Old and the New Testament so that we can clearly see the connections between the two. But now, the time of the events that take place in the book of Job, which we will point out as we go along, they appear to take place sometime after the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, but before the time of Abraham in Genesis 11.27. So somewhere in between them building the tower and all the languages being confused and God calling Abraham, that's where we find ourselves somewhere in that time in this book. As far as the background and setting goes, now, early in the book, we observe a scene in heaven which sets the background for the reader. We'll come to that in Job 1.6, and that background extends into the second chapter. Job was suffering because God was contesting with Satan. But Job didn't know that, and neither did any of his friends, so they're going to attempt to explain Job's suffering from an ignorant perspective. But finally, Job rests on nothing but faith in God's goodness and the hope of his redemption. And the culminating message of the book is that God vindicated Job's trust. And there's going to be a major lesson there for us, which is this. When there are no rational or even theological explanations for disaster and pain, trust God. Now, this is a very remarkable book, by the way. It is the first of the poetical books. In this series, you also have Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and Lamentations. And you will find in Job, as well as in these other poetic books, that the form of the content does not imply fictitious or imagined material, and neither does the term poetical mean that it's rhythmic. See, Hebrew poetry is achieved by repetition of an idea, which is called parallelism. Now, the dialogue in the book of Job was considered poetry in that day. If you've ever read the Iliad and Odyssey of Homer, you know that they're examples in secular literature, because that was the common practice in that day. Now, this is a remarkable book, and there are some very interesting things to say about it. Who is the author? Well, as I've told you, several different authors have been suggested. And I'm not sure, but you'll note that in this book we'll be introduced to a man named Elihu. And we find in Job 32, verse 16, Elihu says, Shall I wait, because they do not speak, because they stop and no longer answer? And you'll notice when we get there that Elihu uses the term I a great deal, which some feel indicate that he may be the author. Something else that's interesting to note, though, we do not know the author, and we don't know exactly when this book was written, and it really is not precisely known where Job lived either. But the time and the place which are so essential to any other book or any other literature, it's not essential here. We don't have the time. We don't have the place exactly. We can suggest certain things that are indicated from the text. For instance, in this book, we find that Job acted as the high priest in his family. And there is no mention in the book of the children of Israel, so this would indicate that it took place 
before they came into existence, even before Jacob was born. Now the important thing about the book of Job is this. There are many problems which are raised and settled by this book. This book is a great philosophical work. And one thing this book does is it gives one of the reasons for why the righteous suffer. But I do not believe that this is the primary teaching. And this book was written to refute the slander of Satan against mankind. It was also written to reveal Job to himself. It was written to teach patience. You remember that James says, you've heard of the patience of Job. Well, I'll tell you, I've read this book many times. And that's about all I know about the patience of Job. I've heard of it. But it's very difficult to see how this man was patient. We'll see it when we get to the end, though. And most people who come to this book think that the primary purpose of the book of Job is to teach about suffering. May I say I don't agree with those people. I think that the primary purpose of the book of Job is to teach repentance. You see, when men today write a book on repentance, they always pick a character that had a sinful beginning. There was, for example, Manasseh, the most ungodly king of Judah. We find him in the historical books of the Old Testament, and he repented. And then there was Saul of Tarsus, of course, the greatest enemy that the Lord Jesus Christ ever had. He repented. But now here, God did not pick a man like that. He could have, but instead, God picked the best man that probably ever lived in the time of the Old Testament. And he chose this best man, and he showed that even he needed to repent. At the end of the book, Job says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. And he's finally getting an opportunity to speak to God there, and he says, I repent. And this ought to teach every believer. Everyone that's listening to me today, it ought to tell us one thing. That no matter how good we think we are, in God's sight, we would see ourselves, even our righteousness, as filthy rags. We need to repent. Now, this book is a great philosophical work. It's been somewhat of a neglected book. When was the last time you read Job, my friend? Or heard an entire sermon on the book of Job? It has been neglected in large part, and it's been misunderstood, and I'll tell you why. The book of Job reveals a man who is very conscious of God. At first, he did not see himself in the light of God's presence, and he just couldn't find anything wrong with himself. He certainly was very egotistical about his own righteousness, and he maintained it in the face of everyone around him. He felt that before God, well, he was all right. And, in fact, he wanted to come into the presence of God and defend himself. But when he did come into God's presence, he found out that he needed to repent. Now, that is not modern man by any means. Modern man tries to shift the blame for our deficiency and our inability and our sin onto someone else. We're not putting it on the right one. 
there is one who bore all of our sin. And until you and I recognize that we are sinners and we come to him, my friend, well, we're just putting the blame on the wrong one. We have here that problem. And modern man has a real predicament. But his problem is that he's blaming his sin on others and he has no place to go to find that comfort. Because modern man today, with all of his materialism and all of his secularism and humanism, he's put around himself every gadget that you could think of, and that is a great security. In other words, you and I have our security blanket, and we snuggle up to it. Why? Well, because modern man doesn't have a God to go to. He doesn't have a Savior to go to. Job did. The fact is, God is putting him through the mill that will finally bring him into the presence of God. And today, modern man is being put through the mill, even with all this affluent society that we're in. With all these modern gadgets and with all the comforts of life, modern man, even in his luxury, is absolutely adrift on a piece of driftwood out in the middle of a vast ocean and he doesn't know where he is or where he's going and that's rather frightening by the way we'll get a better perspective on that as the book of Job deals with some profound principles and great truths and we'll also get some fascinating and surprising looks at the Lord Jesus throughout this book but now let's get our foot in the door to start the scene opens as we read verse 1 of chapter 1 of the book of Job. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. Now, my friend, this is a very wonderful scene that we have here. And we see the land of Uz, which no one has any way of determining exactly where it was. It could be California today, actually. It could be North Carolina or New York State. It could be any of the 50 states. In fact, it could be any place on top side of this earth. I would suggest, though, that it probably was somewhere in the ancient Near East, what we today would call the Middle East. But nothing specific beyond that can be known. Historian Flavius Josephus gives us a little glimmer of light on the location of the land of Uz, according to Genesis 22, the firstborn of Nahor, that is Abraham's brother, was Uz, and we are told that he was the founder of the ancient city of Damascus, the oldest continuously inhabited city in the world. And I do realize that other cities make that claim also, but now if it was Damascus, or that region, then Job lived somewhere in the Syrian desert, where later the Lord sent Paul the Apostle to get some postgraduate studies also. But anyways, my land of us and your land of us, they may be different places geographically, but they're both places where God wants us to learn certain lessons. Now we're told that this man's name was Job, and that this man actually was blameless. Now what does it mean that he was blameless? Well, it means that he was perfect in his relation to God, in the sense that he offered sacrifices, and it would have been the burnt offerings in that day, 
and he offered those sacrifices for his sons. We'll find that later on in verse 5. And this man Job feared God. He has a high and holy concept of God. And as a result, well, he hates evil. He's a little different than modern man was, as, as we'll see. And let's get acquainted with this man Job. We're told here, verse 2, Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. He had a very wonderful family, you see. And these ten children, well, they just lived in luxury and ease. Listen to this, verse 3. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the east. Now those camels were very important for several reasons. Actually, camel's milk was a luxury. And we're told that he had 500 female donkeys, she-asses in the King James Version. Now, why did he have all of those? Well, he not only was running a great trucking business, that is, transportation, but he used these camels and the she-asses for their milk. It was considered a delicacy in that day. And that's one delicacy I'm willing to pass on, by the way. Now, this man, Job, was living in the lap of luxury. And we're told that he had a very great household. So, that man was the greatest of all the men in the East. He had ten children, seven sons, and three daughters. And that was a great blessing to him. I'm not quite sure how much of a blessing you would consider that today. It sounds a little expensive. But Job could actually afford it. We see something about this man here. He's a very wealthy man. He was the Howard Hughes, the John D. Rockefeller, Henry Ford, and the rich oil man all rolled into one. He's a wealthy man of that day. Now we're told here, verse 4, His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. Now they were living in the lap of luxury, and they certainly had it easy, by the way. But now notice, in all the midst of plenty and ease, there was a lingering fear in the heart of this man Job. Verse 5, When the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning, and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, Perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now, the thing that interests me is, he didn't feel like he needed an offering. He felt like he was right with God. But he felt like, well, maybe these sons and daughters of his weren't as close to God as they should be, so he offered some sacrifices for them. He's acting as the high priest in his own family. And this is quite a remarkable picture that we have drawn for us here. Now, this is scene one, and it's a gorgeous scene. A scene of a wealthy man living in the lap of luxury, and he has plenty. Oh my, he had everything in abundance. But he had a fear in his heart. A fear that, well, I think that a great many folks have today about his sons and daughters. He recognized that he couldn't cope with that problem himself. So he went to God. And my friend, there is many a parent today who is distracted, and they're distracted because they have a son or a daughter who has left and gotten into trouble. 
and they themselves have never been able to go to God as this man did. And as a result, let me tell you, they found out that there are some problems they can't solve. And now Job recognizes that. But that's where we will leave off for today. We'll be picking up in verse 6 next time. I'd recommend that you go back and reread what we've covered today, as well as read ahead to the end of chapter 1 to see what we'll be dealing with next time. And so, of course, you can come to your own conclusions. And Lord willing, we'll continue next time and we'll get a look behind the curtain to see what's really going on behind the scenes. But until then, may God richly bless you, my beloved. See you later.